Welcome to Guns, Knives, and Lipstick, the podcast where four female crime fiction authors explore the delights, disasters, and demands of the publishing journey and chat with those who share that journey with us. We're your hosts, Carrie Peresta, C.L. Tolbert, Mally Becker, and Liz Miller. Join us as we chat with some of our favorite authors and go behind the scenes of their writing lives. So let's get to it, shall we? Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. We're so happy today to have Gabriel Valjean as our guest. Gabriel is the author of the Roma series, The Company Files, and the Shane Clary Mysteries, which are great, by the way. He has been listed for the Fish Prize three times, shortlisted for the Bridport Prize once, and received an honorable mention for the Nero Wolf Black Orchid Novella Contest. Gabriel has been nominated for the Agatha Anthony Silver Fashion Award, Falchon Awards and received the 2021 McCavity Award for Best Short Story. Gabriel is a member of the Historical Novel Society, ITW, MWA, and Sisters in Crime. Welcome, Gabriel. Hello, thank you for having me. It's nice to be thank here. Thank you. It thank is you. wonderful to have you here. Yes. As I said, I've read I've read the Shane Clary mysteries. I've read all three of them. They're great. Oh, thank Anybody you. who likes that kind of noirish. I mean, I know they're in the 70s, but they've got a great voice for um, that old timey, old 50s style voice. And I thought it was awesome. Thank you. So to start off, um, and you can talk, we're going to, I'm going to ask this book, but you can talk about whatever book you want. I think the last sure. one that you had out was Hush Hush. Was, is that correct? Correct. Okay. So you can talk about Hush Hush or you can talk about any book that you want. It doesn't sure. really matter to us. Um, but with whatever book you choose, how would you describe it and, and its themes in a couple sentences? So what's your elevator pitch? Sure. So um, let's talk about Hush Hush. So Hush Hush is the third book in the Shane Cleary series. Uh, the series itself is set in the 70s in Boston. This particular novel, uh, if I had to pitch it, would be about a disgraced PI who is seeking justice in an unjust system. Uh, he's, in, he's hired to help the son of, uh, hired to, to help somebody who has probably been wrongfully convicted of a murder with two other men. And, you know, he basically has to travel through the Boston legal system and go up against cops and other elements in the ecosystem, which is everything from cops. Uh, there's a racial component. There's also an organized crime component. So hopefully there's a little bit of something for everybody. Well, yeah, because everybody, when you say Boston to people, everybody thinks Harvard and Yale and Boston Blue Bloods and this whole Right. You know, very, very, whatever. but Boston was rough, man. Right. And right. what I have, Shane, um, so this, this particular story takes place in 1976, 1977. Uh, Boston was still reacting to the busing crisis, which was a court mandated integration. Um, in, I want to say 1972, 1973. And that court order uh, was basically asking the public school system to um, have parity between white and black students. They also, and people forget about this, the court order was also to integrate public housing. So this is in the 70s, this is almost 10 years after Martin Luther King was assassinated, that we're still dealing with civil rights issues it was an extremely racially divided city. Um, the way I describe it to people is, and you did see this also in New York in the 70s, not the racial component, but the fact that the city had different ethnic neighborhoods, uh, the Italians, the Irish. Um, you did have an element of Hispanic and everybody stayed in their neighborhood. You know, They went out to work during the day, but at night they stayed in their neighborhood. Uh, with the court mandated ruling in 72, uh, kids were being bused from one neighborhood 
into another neighborhood and people literally rioted. Uh, the police were called out. Uh, there were roving gangs, uh, both white and black, people being attacked. Uh, so in Hush, the, the, the murder in question, the, the, the mystery that happens, happens in the combat zone, which is an area of Boston that if you didn't live outside Boston, you might not know, but this was a basically two blocks of strip bars, porno theaters, uh, where you had prostitution, you had drugs. This was kind of a legacy of from the 40s where the city had agreed to create a area where the men coming on leave from the military can go and party. That got amplified when Scully Square got raised. Now Scully Square was an area where you had vaudeville theaters, uh, you had burlesque. Um, I won't say it was highbrow, but it wasn't as decadent or it wasn't as pornographic as you saw later in the 70s. Well, Scully Square basically in the early 60s got leveled to the ground. And in order for that to happen, the city essentially evicted Italian, Irish, and Jewish immigrants that were living in that neighborhood and leveled those businesses. So all the businesses that were bars and burlesques all moved down to the combat zone. Mm -hmm. but that destruction of that neighborhood created a lot of bad blood between working class people and the political structure. If you had ever seen um, the movie Friends of Eddie Coyle, there's mm -hmm. a lot in the movie where they are around government center. Government center, uh, they look like cheese grater buildings. Uh, it's a type of architecture mm -hmm. called brutalist, which comes out of Italy in the 20s and 30s. It's got awful oh, yeah. ugly. Awfully ugly, oh, ugly, awful. ugly, ugly. Mm -hmm. Soviet Union buildings. The, no, the, the library at uh, Georgetown is a brutalist and it is yes. one of the ugliest buildings I've ever seen. I have a question, sure. um, Gabe. Uh, did you use a sensitivity reader? Uh, yes, I did because there was a strong racial component to this, um, this particular story and I was worried um, about offending people. But, you know, luckily with the sensitivity reader, things went fairly well. And I had two, two people read it and they felt, you know, I understand what you wrote. I understand why you wrote it. Uh, I would not be offended by it because the, it's true to the period. Mm -hmm. People use that language. Um, and, you know, I, I need to remind people, like, if you go back and watch the 70 TV shows, like All in the Family. Um, That's Maude, exactly what I thought of, Archie Bunker. Yeah. yeah. They, yeah. they used the N-word. Um, and that yeah. was one of my concerns. Now, I, I do have a uh, gay element to the, to the series, but no one had any problems with that. Uh, now, my character... The one character who is gay is closeted, uh, but I felt that was accurate to the time, you know, that you could not be an openly gay police officer, which is what he is, uh, but he does his job. You know, he, he's not political about his sexuality. It's just that's, I, this is what I do for a living. This is what I am in my private life and never shall the twain meet. Um, but yes, I, I did use a sensitivity reader because I really was on edge about being called out um, because I feel, you know, legitimately so, you know, we should pay attention to diversity, but I also don't think you should burn somebody at the stake because they're willing to address those issues. And I do tell people time and time again, I write the 70s because I think people should be reminded how bad they were. And, right, and it needs to be but, historically <laughs> accurate as well. Right. And I mean, we can't for a lot of people. Yeah, for a lot of people, we, we can't sacrifice the accuracy for people today that get hurt feelings easily. Yes. So that's and kind I, of a fine line there. And I also, okay. I also found that people you know, I'm 53 and I have met people in their late 20s and 30s that do not know the history. Hmm. And I think yep. that's important that they know the history. 
And Absolutely, I agree. I won't, um, you know, people describe my writing as more hard-boiled and, you know, I, I take that as a compliment and I think that's accurate, but I don't think I write as dark as some of the people who were writing in the 70s or who write the 70s now. You know, I'm not graphic with violence. Uh, I'm not graphic with sex. I mean, it's implied, but I do that out of respect because I think people are mature adults. Um, you don't need to get graphic. You know, I also think you don't need to be explicit with the violence because there, I, there's nothing to be gained by that. Mm-hmm. Um, with with sex, you know, I I often joke that I think sex is funny, so it's it's actually hard to write. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I rather, you know, when I I talk about sex, I rather do it like the old school way, like you saw it in the '30s and '40s. You see the door close. Yeah, they disappear into the bedroom. You know what happens? You know. Yes. Use your imagination. Uh, it's your imagination, <laughs> um, and also too, you know, I. I, I think you you have to respect uh, readers today. I think they're mature. They know um, adult topics. They don't have to have it in their face. But at the same time, you know, I I do want to write and let people know that the history of that time period was dark. Yeah. You know, it was dark for women. It was dark for gay people. Certainly racial. Um, and you can't sugarcoat it. I think that would be an injustice. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm old enough to remember the um, Boston um, riots and, uh, you know, watching them on TV and they, it was, it was devastating to the city for sure. And this is Cindy Tolbert, Gabe. Yes. No, you can't see my face. Yes. Um, but I was, um, I was going to ask about the sensitivity reader too, because I've used them before, but your, your dialogue, I mean, we're talking, you say, everybody says you're noir and, I appreciate that, but the um, you're surely not stiff with your with your language or your or your uh, there's no dragnet uh, Sergeant Friday thing going on right. here. The right. dialogue is um, it flows beautifully, and I was so impressed with the scene with the Isaac Hayes um, uh, lookalike and the tension you were able to build there. And how he was sort of saved by the folks in the in the restaurant, but it was you just felt the the dark cloud hovering over that scene, and it honestly is you still still see these sorts of things. It's prevalent today as well, so I think it's an extremely timely book. Um, I don't live in New York. I don't live in Boston. I live in Georgia, right. and you know some men were just tried here for running down um, an African-American young man and killing him. I mean, these things are real. And I think they have to be addressed. And, you know, uh, speaking of the history, that was one of the reasons why I wrote an afterword to to Hush, because I also wanted to have people understand what was true and then what wasn't. You know, this was actually inspired by an actual case I you know, to... I was going to say, I thought I remembered that because I read it and I thought I remembered that in the, in the afterwards yes. that you did use a real I uh, used a real case. Inspiration. Now, and I tell people, so um, when I researched the case, I basically was going off of stuff um, that was in the library, that was online. And then certainly I went deeper with stuff online just to make sure it was accurate. I point people to Jan Brogan's book the combat zone, if they're interested in the nonfiction, you know, she, she's a former journalist. She put a narrative around the actual events. I teased out uh, certain elements of that case. And then I went in a different direction, but I also wanted to make sure in the afterward, two things, one, that people know what was different, what was creative and what's fiction. But I also wanted to give them a context, for the people that don't know the history because either they're too young or they lived in a different part of the country. But yes, I, I do think a lot of the elements in the story is still relevant today, whether you're talking about Blue Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I chose to write noir or that genre is because I like gray 
And I also think crime fiction as a whole uh, is a great venue for doing contemporary events. It's realistic. Uh, it shows all the elements of human nature, good and bad. And I think gray is more realistic. I think if you look at the world in black and white, no pun intended, but if you really look at it with dichotomous looking, dichotomous thinking, that's where you're gonna get in trouble. Speaking of black and white, your your first sentence was a great one. It was, it was you know, I love the chess analogy and I, I, I love the way you just really jump right into the topic. So, so sorry, Valley, I didn't mean to interrupt That's you. okay. Um, Gabriel, you, you, you said you like gray. And, yes. and one of the things I liked the most in, in Hush Hush was Shane's relationship with the head of a crime family. Yes. And you, you turn that, the head of the crime family ends up being kind of this philosophical voice about what's just and what's not, what's injustice. Right. Um, and, and it's so I, unexpected to have that criminal be, be sort of the, the voice, that voice. Well, the, the, my intention there was I wanted to give somebody, I wanted to give the reader somebody, you know, you expect a cop or a judge or somebody with civic responsibility to have some kind of moral integrity. And here you have a self-professed criminal. But what I was trying to tap into without getting into the cliches about the mafia was, um, you know, they have, a, they have a philosophical and they do have an, an honor system, or at least they did then. And, you know, their logic was that if, if we don't have rules on how to govern ourselves and how we behave with each other, then we really are wild animals. You know, we needed to have structure and rules about what you can or can't do. And they applied it within their own um, for lack of better words, ecosystem. Um, you know, they were not going out of their way to, to victimize innocent people. They, they were dealing with people who did business with them or with each other. And Mr. B, um, who is the mafia guy, you know, he has a certain way of looking at things. And I think he has a morality that Shane respects, um, you know, the subtext here for a lot of people who weren't around in the 70s or, or witnessed the, the racial tension, the Italians and the Irish did not get along. So, you know, there's that element. And so there's kind of an edge, you know, here he is where Shane is being helped in some circumstances by somebody who's a criminal but it's you know an unexpected ally. The help, the people he should be getting help from don't want to help him. So and and who's the unexpected moral voice? Yes. In the book. Yes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So we've we've mentioned this a couple of times. You mentioned it um, about the voice in the Shane Clary series, where I I mean I thought it was kind of perfect noir. Cindy mentioned it. You've mentioned it. Are you a fan of noir and how did you get that voice? Like what kind of research did you do, if anything? Sure. I, I am a fan of it. Um, you know, I I mean, I can tell you, you know, all the writers I've read, Chandler, Hammett, Payne, uh, they all have different um, contributions, I think, to crime fiction. I And, and they also can be dangerous influences. Um, for example, Chandler, is a poetic voice. He uses a lot of similes, um, partly because I think in real life, Chandler was a frustrated poet. He, he started out writing poetry and wasn't very good at it, but uh, he did have an ear for the musicality of language, which comes with poetry. And you had somebody like Hammett who worked in the trenches, um, was involved with the Pinkertons, saw firsthand labor union, busting. So I think he had access to the way people spoke at that time, how they acted, you know, rough around the edges. The irony with Hammett is he actually came from a blue blood family, but they had no money. So 
he had to go out early to, to work and support his mother and his family. Kane, um, I think is brilliant when you look at his dialogue, it just flows right off the page. You know, and I think that's one of the things that, I think one of the hallmarks of all good writing is it looks so easy because mm. it just flows and people think that's easy writing mm. and it's not, mm. it's actually the hardest. It's not. And one of the things I like doing, you know, you mentioned about my dialogue is one of the challenges I, I enjoy as a writer is when you do dialogue and you're doing subtext. So in other words, on a surface, you're talking about this, but if you're clued into what's going on and you're perceptive, you realize the conversation is about something completely different. And I try to do that with Mr. B and Shane because Mr. B's paranoid that his place is wiretapped. So everything he talks about is in code. <laughs> and, he, oh, yeah. and it does introduce a little bit of humor um, I think that's one of the overlooked overlooked aspects of noir you know people focus on the violence they focus on the crime but there actually is a very philosophical dark humor mm -hmm. undercurrent because mm -hmm. let's face it if you're dealing with dark and dark and dark why would you finish the book it'd be too depressing you, you yeah. know you want something you want something that drives you you know, whether it's the character, yeah. the setup. So yeah, those conversations are fun. They're they're they're. I I chuckled when I read them. There, you know, they they are fun. Um, so you've written uh, in a bunch of different time periods. I haven't read all your books, but I've seen. You know, the Shane Clearys are in the seventies. Yep. Um, I think you had some references to some like McCarthyism. So you're in the fifties, early Cold the War, and then I think you've done some contemporary contemporary stuff as well. So what makes you pick a time period and why those two historical time periods? So with the Shane Cleary uh, series, I mean, the short answer to that is I was a kid during the 70s, so I kind of knew it. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of saying I write what I know, sort of. Uh, you know, as a kid, you live it. You don't really appreciate it until you're about 20, 30 years after the fact because you're you know, it's kind of yeah. like that joke, you know, everybody runs around saying, oh, you know, my mom, we just went out all day, rode on our bikes. We didn't have bike helmets. You know, we were on the playground with broken glass. How did we survive childhood? Well, that's that's how I feel about the 70s. <laughs> you know, it's, it was there. I survived it. And then, you know, I, and I, I mentioned this earlier when I mentioned All in the Family, I missed those shows because they were edgy. I mean, they really dealt with some really risque yeah, right. topics, yeah. whether, it was a, whether it was abortion, adultery, alcoholism. Today, I think things are a little bit too soft-pedaled and tame. Strategically, the other reason why I write historical, so the company files is in the 50s, deals with communism. I still think that's relevant today where you're trying to tell people how to think and you know, do it in a way not to offend anybody. But the other strategy as a writer is it's all in the past. You don't have to worry about the internet. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's so, not so you, you don't back yourself into a corner. You know, it's, it's 50, 60 years after the fact. So everything that we sort of kind of know about it is written somewhere, can be found somewhere. The, um, <clears throat> that's the a good the contemporary series that I did, uh, the Roma series, really came out of my love of Italy and traveling. So that that is contemporary. Um, you know, that does deal a little bit with technology, but I try not to get too deep into that. It's more character driven. All my books, and I, I say this categorically, all my books, regardless of the time period, it's all about relationships and friendships, about who you can trust, who you you can't trust and ultimately if you don't have friends and you can't trust somebody you're in a very lonely world and the world oh, yeah. is, is really a very negative place and I think you know friendships are what get you through life absolutely oh yeah although I will say um working on the book that I'm working on now which is in my historical series and it's coming out next March 
Um, that lack of technology is a little challenging at times because I'm in the 40s. I have two characters at two different spots in the city and they need to talk to each other. I needed them right. to talk to each other. And I wasn't, you know, how are you going to make that happen? It's, <laughs> it is a challenge. Yeah, well, think <laughs> about it. True. It the is other, a challenge. The other thing is that when you're writing something like that, you really are returning to the tradition of the detective or the PI, whatever you want to call them. You have to use deductive reasoning. You know, yeah. it's oh, not absolutely. like you it's not like you can pick up your phone and Google something. You, right. you have yeah. to sit down and think about what do I know? What can I infer? What can I suppose until I could disprove it? Right. Um, the other thing, you know, and I, I found this when I was writing the next chain was, you know, things were very different when without cell phones. So, you know, uh, I keep thinking of that meme I see where you see some teenagers, they're taking a photograph of a payphone because they've never seen one. It's like yeah. an archaeological find. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. there's, there's an element of humor. Um, so the mob guys, when they thought they were being wired and wiretapped and listened to, they would go out in the street and they would go from payphone to payphone and continue the conversation. Cops, when they wanted to call into the station, if they, if they didn't have the radio in their car because they were unmarked, they actually had to go to a payphone and tell the command center where they were and what they were doing. People lose sight of that. And I think it's oh, hilarious, yeah. but it's accurate. Well, my oh, yeah. first three books wouldn't have worked had there been um, cell phones, you know, because of the communication issue. Um, there were times when uh, the protagonist couldn't communicate with anyone at all. And it, if, if I wrote it in today's time, it would that sort of scene would not have worked. So right. I well, also just, think you're very, you're very brave, I have to say, in the way you approach some of the topics, some of these sens sensitive topics. I'm just very impressed with the way it's just out from the very beginning. And I've, you. you know, I've, I've dealt with some of the sensitive topics and I, don't feel like I've been quite as brave as you. I'm really impressed by, by the way you're handling this and the way you just lay it out as it is. Well, I, I think you have to grab the reader's attention. I think, on, I think on the positive side and on the negative side, there are so many books out there, so many choices for readers, which is fantastic. But at the same time, it ups your game as a writer because mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to get their attention. You have to draw them in. And I think, you know, your narrative strategies, you have to think them through. You know, there are some readers that will give you, you know, they'll browse and they'll only give you a page or they'll read the first five pages. And if you don't have their attention, you know, it's kind of like that mind Python, bring out the dead body, you know, <laughs> they, they want to get into it. Right. And five is generous. I, yes. Yeah, I, 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 had, I had one person tell me they read paragraphs. the first paragraph. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I know people are like, they read one paragraph. If you haven't grabbed them at the end of the first paragraph, you're gone, you're sunk. Right. That's rough. That's a, so, little, that's a little unfair, but. Yeah, I think the first paragraph is a, is a little unfair myself. Um, so we were talking before we started uh, recording, okay. we were talking about writing journeys and things that you had done before you became a full-time writer. Um, and you've got quite the background from medieval literature to engineering to nursing to finally uh, fiction. Um, why mystery? Like when that whole thing happened and you decided to start writing, why crime fiction? Well, this is, all right. My answer is going to sound a little bit of hindsight because it's rationalization. But when you think about engineering, you're trying to solve a problem whatever that is. As a nurse, um, and I think nurses make great detectives because you are essentially, you have to have very good interview skills and very good assessment skills. Why? Because oftentimes what the person's telling you doesn't correspond with what you know. Um, right. And it's not, it's not deliberately that they're being deceitful. They may be embarrassed about whatever the health issue is, um, or they are in denial, 
or they're trying to hide something. So as a nurse, you're looking at the physical, you're looking at the psychological. Uh, and when I say the physical, I mean, maybe the symptoms of an illness, but you're also looking at body language, you know, does what they say match what they're telling you. You're looking at the environment around them. You know, you got the husband or the wife or the family, you, you, you're getting clued into the dynamic. Um, you pick it up. So that all helped me as a writer. How I got into writing is a little bit somewhat darker. Um, I started as an experiment because I had weekends off as a nurse. So I wanted to pass my time. I'm not one to, this is before Netflix came out with fantastic series. So I never really watched a lot of TV and um, I needed to pass my time. But basically I came up with a challenge that I would write a short story every weekend for a year. I just wanted to see if I can do it. And I would say most of the stories sucked, <laughs> but <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. The challenge from my first novel, which was the Roma series, came from a fellow nurse who swore up and down that a man could not write a female character. So I wrote a short story and I loved the character. So I made her into a novel. Um, but that, you know, that was before I tried getting, I eventually got that book published. But while I had that on the back burner, um, I was diagnosed with cancer and I had to deal with radiation surgery. And I ended up writing just as a way of not dealing with depression. Uh, it was also a distraction from pain. And I found out I really enjoyed it. You know, I, I did not have writer's block. Uh, I also saw writing as a way of teaching myself what I know and what I don't know. And also, I think subconsciously, and I hope this is true for other writers, when you read over a lifetime, I think you absorb it in your DNA or you absorb it in your subconscious because you start writing sentences and you're like, hold on a second, I'm cribbing from somebody I know or I know Chandler did this or I know this writer did that and it becomes kind of like this cosmic library you're borrowing but you're making it new <laughs> and I think as long as it's fun it's it, it, it's it's a job that it's not a job it's just fun right um so really? I you know I can't I have a hard time relating to people um that tell me that writing's hard because I say well you need to find it. You, have, you need to find, make it fun again, because once it's fun, it's not going to be hard. Or they're and, not meant to do it, you know. Right. Some people but, want to do yeah. it, but they just aren't yeah. meant to do it. So it's very, very well, hard. I mean, people have like a different process. You know, I, I learned this recently. Um, I have a friend who does uh, index cards for characters or index cards for scenes. And she was explaining to me and I'm like, I don't do that. I just write what's in my head. I see the yeah. scene and that's the chapter. Um, now the things that you teach yourself are pacing. You know, I do this in a scene or a chapter. I leave something hanging. I go to something else. Do I, when do I go back to that? Because I don't want the reader to forget that. Okay. Um, then doing that and shaping it is what makes it coherent and makes it flow. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if you have a really good editor, you know, so, and I explain to people there are different types of editing, okay? I try not to get hung up on grammar. Uh, English was not my first language, so I'm hypersensitive about that. But I just sit down and write it. And then, you know, I have somebody proofread it, put in all the things that I missed grammar-wise and missing words, a developmental editor will tell you uh, if, if the story's organic, you know, is, is, are the plot points working? You know, is it coherent? Does it make sense? Then you have uh, the ones I love are the continuity or editors. So a continuity editor will tell you she came in the room with red, red heels and she walked out with black heels. When did she change them? <laughs> Yeah, I need a continuity yep. editor. I'd like to. That's I'd a like continuity to edit. 
But, in but chapter my, three, she was driving a red Corvette, and in chapter forty-three, she's driving a black pickup truck. But the thing is, and I know you've seen the reviews. There are people out there that will crucify you if you make a mistake yeah, like that. Absolutely. And yeah. now there's a point, you know, and I, um, there's a point where you can't make everybody happy. Um, you know, somebody's going to ding you for profanity. Somebody might say sex. Somebody might say violence. Um, but the point is, you have to write the story. Um, hopefully, you know your characters well. Your characters speak to you. Um, but you know, I, it's fun. You know, I don't sit down and count my daily word count. I, I write until I'm tired. You know, I I just write it, and then I go over it several times. And I have somebody else read it because I know what I see on the page after a while, I'm not gonna see it. Mm. I, I, my, my, yeah. my brain, my eyes fill in the missing letters. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I tell, I tell writers at the end of the day, what's on the page has to work because you're not there to talk to somebody over the shoulder. It, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's your yeah. affidavit. And what I really meant was. What's that? <laughs> Now let's stand them and stand in front of them and go. When what I meant was right. One thing you do, I'm impressed with, is listing all the characters at the front of the book. That is that is an, a a very thoughtful thing to do. I think. You know, and the you know the funny thing is, I've had I had one or two reviews where people tell me it's too many people, and I'm like, I don't think so. You know, I mean, I've I remember in the '70s, I used to love um, you know the big generational sagas. You know, yes. you, op you open up so the book. It's, oh it's yeah, North and South. <laughs> right, it's seven eight hundred page book. You got yeah. trees in the book. You got family trees, and I'm like, uh, you know, people went from handling family trees where you got sixty characters, and they're complaining of me where I have ten or right. fifteen. Well, you're you're certainly hoping that all your readers are so engrossed that they finish the entire book in five hours. But if they happen to put it down for a day or two and pick it up, it's great to have that it character. Is. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, I, it's very thoughtful. And, and I did, you know, even though people say I'm noir and hard-boiled, my tip of the hat to the cozy romance is I do include a cat. <laughs> you do have a cat. I have a cat. You do have a Shane cat. has a cat. Delilah. And yeah. I think uh, I pointed out recently, technically, if you want to talk about a plot hole, Shane's doing all these things out in Boston, solving this and talking to this person who feeds the cat. That is, I, I had to give uh, my protagonist in the Laurel Highland series a very helpful neighbor because he, because Jim uh, Duncan has a golden retriever and dunks are even less self, you know, self-sufficient than cats. So if Jim's out and he's got to work a 10 hour, 12 hour shift, who's, who's feeding Rizzo? Well, he's got a neighbor. He can call the neighbor I, and say, hey, go feed the dog. Gabriel, well, I also have Delilah serve as his moral conscience. <laughs> That's fun. Um, Shane, well, this may be out of order. Shane also um, had a, a girlfriend in Hush Hush. Yes. Are we, yeah. are we going to yes. see yes. her again? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. So the fourth book um, is called Liar's Dice. And hopefully, fingers and toes crossed, that will come out in January. So you met his girlfriend in Hush Hush. Her name's Bonnie. And uh, for readers that don't know the series, she's a criminal defense lawyer. So... In some ways, you would think that this would be an antagonistic relationship. Uh, I don't think so. You know, I think uh, Shane is a moral person, and she's not, by any stretch of the imagination, a sleazy lawyer like you see in the 70s and the 80s films. Uh, she is very principled. Her main issue is she's a woman lawyer in a male-dominated profession, and she well, does yeah. a lot of crap, a lot of crap. And she wants to be taken serious as a legal professional, as an intelligent person. Um, so she bounces ideas off of Shane. And Shane certainly um, respects her opinion. 
and she's she's no uh, shrinking violet. No, she she well, doesn't. I don't either. I don't think it's a weird uh, relationship at all, Gabriel, because um, I have a criminal defense attorney and a cop put together in a relationship. Uh, I do too. So, I know. do too. Ironically, yes. <laughs> or it but works it, for me. It totally it, works it for me. It works for me. Yeah. Um. So. You've done, and you've talked about this a little bit, you've done novels okay. and you also did short stories. You, yes. uh, I read your bio, you've got yeah, an award-winning short story. Um, do you like one better than the other? What do you like, uh, um, or what do you like most about each form? And is one easier to do? I don't think one is easier than the other. I, you know, the way I describe it to people is um, some writers are long distance runners and some love sprints. And the thing you have to recognize right away is the short story format is shorter fiction. You have a small canvas, three to 5,000 words. So you gotta figure out, A, what your story is and what your compromises are. Short, I, I think the biggest compromise most writers have with the short story is they can't do as much character development. Um, I try to work around that. With a novel, you have more breathing room, more pacing. So the, the issue is pacing. You wanna make sure you're juggling everything, keeping people interested. Um, you know, you keep the dance going. Um, but I also think the short story format is an excellent way to see whether or not the idea that you have for a novel has any legs. You know, you wanna see like, I like this idea. Can I, can I do a test? for three or 5,000 words and see ultimately if I can stretch this out to 50, 60, 70, 80,000 words. I mean, I explained earlier, one of my short story actually became a novel because I liked the character. I, I saw her personality. Uh, I saw what I can do with her. And then I just, I wrote five novels based on her being the central character. But I, I like both. And I think, you know, I don't think one is more painful than the other. I just think they're both fun. So what do you, in, in anything that you write, novel, whatever series, short story, whatever, reader gets to the last page and either closes the book or puts the story down. What are you hoping that they, they take away? What are you, what are you uh, trying to evoke in them? What kind of feelings? Well, the, I'm hoping that they, they First of all, I hope they enjoy the time they spent with the characters I created, that they actually like them. You know, one of the things I see in contemporary noir that I don't particularly like um, is you have very disagreeable people, people you don't want to have dinner with or have a drink with. And the question I have is, okay, I could respect whatever they did for this story, but why would I go back to them? You know, why, why would I come back? Um, Mickey Spillane had this great quote. He said, the last page is what sells your next book. Yeah. And I, I think right. that makes sense. Yeah. You know, if, if you create characters, you don't have to like all of them. They can be flawed, but they have to be some, there has to be something about them that appeals to you as a person that makes you want to come back and spend time with them. And as a writer, you have to Amen I, I like the fact, the compliment to me is somebody came back and they spent that four or five hours, whatever it took for them to read the book because they wanted to know what's the next thing mm -hmm. for the cat, for Shane, for the, you know, Bonnie, whoever it is. What's interesting is asking readers which character they liked because it's not always the one you like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I just got an email from a friend of mine who, who read one of the books. She's reading up my Laurel Highland series. And she's like, I, I love this one particular character. She's just my favorite. And I'm like, not a main character and not a character I intended to keep around for more than one book. But she has persisted in the nature of characters the way they do. Um, so... What it, you've talked about it, I think I know what the answer to this question. Uh, what's your next project and how far along is it? So uh, the next chain is Liar's Dice. That's number four in the series. Um, 
hopefully that will come out in January. And um, <clears throat> this in this particular outing, Shane basically, to use the expression, gets an offer he can't refuse. He has to find somebody, and he's he's put he's put into an ethical dilemma basically uh, with his friendships. So uh, right now that has been submitted, that is going through developmental edits. Um, if all goes well, that will come out in January. In my downtime for that, I am revising another um, novel. I, I, I wrote two of them, but I'm revising the first in a series uh, set in Shanghai in 1930s. Ooh, um, this, oh, I love that. Yeah. So, uh, this is also inspired by history. Um, I, I find it fascinating. And what, what got me to writing about this was two things. One was I discovered this historical person, uh, Sir Victor Sassoon, um, actual person. He ran Shanghai for the, for the uh, British crown. His money and his family money uh, came from opium. So oh. in essence, wow. he really ran the world's first cartel. Wow. And the, uh, the thing that's fascinating about him was he was not, he, he was knighted and all that, but he was not accepted by the British aristocracy because he was Jewish. Hmm. And oh, okay. What the, the second part to this, the, what inspired me was I got into a conversation with a friend of mine and the more I read about Shanghai, the more I read about what was going on with China and Japan at that point in the 1930s, the more I felt that World War II started in the East, not in Europe. Huh. For one significant fact, and I think this is something that a lot of people uh, forget, so everybody looks at Hitler and his aggressions in Europe, him finally attacking Poland, and that triggered uh, World War II. But what you forget is that China and Japan for about 30 years were going back and forth. The Japanese, I think it was in 1905 or 1907, but I think it was 1905, the Japanese sank the Russian fleet, the entire Russian Navy in an hour and a half. And I do remember nobody, that. Yeah. nobody in your, uh, nobody on the world power scene in Europe, America, Russia, nobody had expected the Japanese to be able to do something like that. Mm. That ultimately, um, that conflict is what gave Teddy Roosevelt his first, well, his only Nobel Prize. He negotiated the peace treaty. So Japan basically. Uh, retreated, went back into it, you know, where they were. Shanghai basically was like Vienna in the 40s. It was split up by four world powers and run accordingly. Everybody forgot about the, the Japanese, but, you know, communism was on the rise and Japan basically was becoming more and more aggressive and imperialistic and Essentially, at least the way I look at it, the writing was on the wall that there was going to be a confrontation. And if you, if you remember, Hitler, as part of the Axis, allied himself with Japan. Right. And I think, I honestly think that things would have been very different if Hitler actually listened to the Japanese. Because basically, he just looked at them as an ally over there and just ignored them. Part of it was cultural, part of it was language, but people back then uh, unfortunately looked at the Japanese and the Chinese as inferior. They looked at them as a, as a, as a different culture, different mindset that they couldn't relate to. I do think the mindset is very different from ours, but the point I'm getting at was back then, everybody really looked at them as, as subhuman, that they weren't even worth consideration and they grossly underestimated them. Um, Shanghai fell in the late 30s. Sassoon, ultimately, his last hurrah, he got out, I think, in 1940. Uh, and we all know what happened in 1941. Oh, yeah. 
So China, I mean, Japan was basically all through World War II fighting a war on two fronts. They were fighting the Chinese and they were participating in the war against the US and the, and the islands. So. So is, is Sassoon uh, a main, the main character of this he's book? He's the or main is he character. Present. Okay, so you're actually using a real historical person. I'm using as the a real character. historical character. And oh, wow, that's the thing, great. The thing that makes it even more intriguing about Sassoon was uh, he built, he created the modern Shanghai skyline. He created all the hotels. The hotel that he lived in, which is now called the Peace Hotel, was called the Cathay Hotel. But the cozy element to this, even though it is a little bit of a dark series, is Sassoon was crippled. He could not, he seldom went outside the hotel. So I created two characters that would go out and do his work for him that would solve the crimes. Near a wolf. Right. So Shades. he has an Archie character who is, uh, who is uh, American, but has, he's stuck there because of the depression. The stock market had crashed. So he, he's Oxford educated, but he's an American. But I also have an Asian character, a Chinese character who is, um, had a Chinese mother and a British father. So the dynamic is you have the American, when, when they're in the hotel, he is the detective because he's American. He knows the language, he's English. When my other character, Shay, who's Chinese, when they have to go out in Shanghai, he's the detective. So you have these two detectives that do a one and two. They, they one's the lead, one the other one becomes the lead, depending on whether they're inside the hotel or they're out in the city. Sassoon um, basically is like the brain. He's like Nero Wolf. Right. He sits, sits behind the desk. In real life, um, he got crippled uh, in a plane accident. Uh, he, he was involved in World War One, So he walked around with two canes because basically his legs were crushed. Uh, when the plane landed, it crushed his legs. And, uh, you know, he had a rehab from that. Obviously, it didn't kill him. But it's a fascinating character. Um, and you have a mix of everything in there. You have an American in there. I have an American woman character also drawn from real life. Her name was Emily Hahn. Um, she was a journalist that wrote for the New Yorker. And she was a liberated woman in the 20s or 30s. She went into cafe society where there were men, didn't care. She was a bit eccentric. She traveled with a pet gibbon. <laughs> a gibbon? <laughs> like she had baby Ellen. A gibbon is a yeah. small monkey. <laughs> yeah, okay. I remember the and, movies for monkeys were a and big his deal. Name, and yeah. his, na his name was Mr. Mills. Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's too funny. And Sassoon, uh, in addition to running opium, uh, he basically funded the British crown. I mean, his family were, was the family that founded the East India Company. So if they go back to the 1600s with the Dutch. Uh, yes, right. they were involved with tea. They were for a while involved with slavery, but basically he controlled opium because his family in India controlled the fields. So they were, he was controlling all the opium that ran in and out and there was a tax on it. The British put a tax on the opium. So that's oh, how they collected the yeah. revenue. Oh. But Shang Shanghai was kind of like, was kind of like the Las Vegas of the twenties and thirties. Right. Everything you did there stayed there. <laughs> and Sassoon was also uh, a amateur photographer and he, um, he liked photographing nude women with their consent, but he, he was quite a character. You know? so probably was I, I was gonna say, it sounds like a fun character. Yeah, and I was gonna ask, look who is your favorite character that you've ever written? Oh, wow. I know that's a tough one, isn't it? Because we bond with them, all I of would, them, but your favorite, favorite protagonist. <laughs> protagonist. So protagonist, I, um, 
I do like Shane, but I would say in the company files, uh, which there's three books, that's the one that deals with the Cold War and uh, old Hollywood. There's a character in there named Walker. So Walker is uh, a World War II veteran. He was involved with the OSS. His superior, who became his friend, tapped him to join what became the CIA. Walker, um, and the reason I like Walker is, you know, here's this guy, you know, you gotta figure end of World War II, he's in his late twenties. He, he has no real family, doesn't have a girlfriend or whatever. doesn't know what to do with himself. He trusts his friend, has no idea what the CIA is gonna become. Um, he's just looking at it as an extension of the OSS. And I think back then nobody knew what to do with the CIA because they already had the FBI but as a character, uh, he comes to realize he's a writer. Hmm. And I like that journey. You know, it's, it, he, he's a guy who can get, to, get things done, but he's insecure about himself. He, he does end up forming a love relationship with this one woman uh, who is very independent. And she's looking at the world from like, hey, I was a world-class spy you know, I got into Hitler's inner circle and now you want me to go and put on an apron and work <laughs> in the kitchen. So he meets this liberated woman. But the point is he grows in confidence as a writer because in the second book, he goes undercover at the Warner Studios as, as a screenwriter. Ah. And, and his friend, Jack, ah. who sends him on the assignment, he tells Jack, I'm not a writer. How am I supposed to do this? He says, well, you'll figure it out. And he ends mm -hmm. up enjoying writing. Mm -hmm. Well, so, so you could relate to that character. That sounds I a lot like your journey. Yeah. Right, yeah. Because I, you know, I read a lot of interviews and I, a lot of writers say, oh, you know, I knew I wanted to be a writer since I was five years old, eight years old. You know, I wrote my first story, grade school. I didn't start writing until my early 40s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I never thought I never thought I'd be here. I well, can not only you here, but you're, you're remarkably supportive of other writers too. And that's one of the things I wanted to mention today that we, I personally am grateful for all that you do. And I'm sure everybody thank here you. is too. Oh, yes, yeah. we are, Gabriel. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Generous I don't spirit. think I'd be able to fill out all my ballots without you doing all the work to put <laughs> no. together all the books. Well, and you're really good at social media too. That all started because I was trying to figure out who to vote for. And I was trying to get a handle on, you know, okay, well, who's a cozy and then who is, you know, who, who qualifies for the Anthony. And then I was looking at different, you know, what's really interesting is that the Anthony does not have an historical category. No, they the don't. Ag they don't. And the Agatha over time changed the criteria for what qualifies as historical. Mm -hmm. So now the 70s are historical, so I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> so I, I, I always tell people that, you know, the I think it's the Historical Novel Society that says rule of thumb, anything 50 years ago or more is historical. I object to that because next year I become historical and I do not like that. <laughs> not we all fun. become historical. I guess it's better than the alternative still. Exactly. So the yeah. last two questions are, sure. are just rapid, don't think, just okay. give us an answer. Sure. So what is the last great book you read, author and book title? No explanation. Okay. Uh, the title, Eight Million Ways to Die, and the author is Lawrence Block. That's, that's the last book I read. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and then our favorite question, and you can think of Hush Hush, or you can pick a different book. What alcoholic beverage would pair best with your book? Um, I would say for all the Shane Cleary, Shane Cleary series, an old fashioned. Ah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Come on, That's it's good. a very... It's a very masculine drink. It, it is. is. A very masculine My son-in-law has all the paraphernalia and all the bitters or whatever the heck goes into all that and it's a ceremony whenever he makes an old-fashioned <laughs> he would love that 
Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Gabriel. Um, We've had a great time. And for anybody who's listening, if you haven't read the Shane Cleary Mysteries or any of other Gabriel's books, rush out to your, you know, favorite bookseller and, and buy them and read them and enjoy them. You will not regret it. And what's your so, um, website, Gabriel? Oh, yeah. Uh, Where can it, we find you? So it, it, Online. it follows my name. So it'll be uh, Gabriel Valjean, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-V-A-L-J-A-N.com. If you just type that in the browser, it'll take you there. Okay. And I and have I all, my, book, I have all get... my books up there. And I also have, uh, for people that visit, they can read excerpts from each book in the series to kind of taste test to see if they like it. Excellent. Excellent. And I've got links to all of his social media too. I was just there to get his bio. Yes. So that's yes, where you can I'm find it. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, we will talk to everybody next month. And until then, take care. Bye. Thank you, Thank you for having us. Bye, Gabe. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Guns, Knives, and Lipstick. Like what you heard? Subscribe to us wherever you're listening and never miss an episode. And before you go, would you do us a favor? Leave us a rating or review, please. Just like with books, ratings and reviews help other listeners find us and spreads the word. Until we meet next month with a new guest, stay safe, stay well, and above all, ladies, don't forget your lipstick.